good evening. That's a good song to sing. Keep my heart, keep my hand, keep my soul, I pray. Keep my tongue to speak thy praise. Keep me all the way. As we continue our look at the parables of Jesus, uh, I told you when we started this, we weren't going to look at all of them. Well, we're on number 14 tonight, so... Uh, I don't know. There, there are some 38 of them. I don't think we're going to cover them all. But uh, there's some rich stuff in there, especially when you look at the parables within the context of what causes Jesus to say them. Sometimes we just lift the parables up. Uh, there is something uh, in theological exegetical circles called eisegesis. I-S-O-G-E-S-I-S. -S -I, I didn't just make it up. It's a real word. And it means something. That's where we lift a text up out of its context, and we take it and uh, prop it up on its own. And there are some texts that can be uh, lifted up and can stand on their own. We don't, we don't have a problem isogeting God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't even have a problem isogeting some of these parables that we have looked at. But I do think that there is a value in looking at the parables within the context of how Jesus shared the parable with people. Such is the case tonight. Uh, this parable perhaps can stand on its own. Some people might be able to let it stand on its own, but we, uh, we want to keep it within its context. The actual parable uh, starts in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20, but I want to start with the beginning of Luke chapter 20. So I invite your attention to Luke chapter 20, and I want us to look at verses 1 through 18. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Here is the context. One day he was teaching the people in the temple, proclaiming the message. The high priests, religion scholars, and leaders confronted him and demanded, show us your credentials. Who authorized you to speak and act like this? Jesus answered, first, let me ask you a question. About the baptism of John, who authorized it, heaven or humans? They were on the spot and knew it. They pulled back into a huddle and whispered, if we say heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe him. If we say humans, the people will tear us limb from limb, convinced as they are that John was God's prophet. They agreed to concede that round to Jesus and said they didn't know. Jesus said, then neither will I answer your question. Jesus told another story to the people. This is the parable. A man planted a vineyard. He handed it over to farmhands and went off on a trip. He was gone a long time. 
in time, he sent a servant back to, I'm sorry, he sent a servant back to the farmhands to collect the profits. But they beat him up and sent him off empty-handed. He decided to try again and sent another servant. That one they beat black and blue and sent him off empty-handed. He tried a third time. They worked that servant over from head to foot and dumped him in the street. Then the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. They're bound to respect my son. But when the farmhands saw him coming, they quickly put their heads together. This is our chance. This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all to ourselves. They killed him and threw him over the fence. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Right, he'll come and clean house. Then he'll assign the care of the vineyard to others. Those who were listening said, oh no, he'd never do that. But Jesus didn't back down. Why then do you think this was written? That stone the masons threw out. It's now the cornerstone. Anyone failing, falling over that stone will break every bone in his body. If the stone falls on anyone, it will be a total smash up. Okay, so verses 9 through 18 uh, give us the parable. Verses 1 through 8 give us the context in which the parable is given. First thing you need to know is that Jesus is nearing his death at the time that he gives this parable. He's no longer uh, making his way through the various villages around uh, Palestine. He's in Jerusalem. Notice that it says that he was teaching in the temple, not in a synagogue, not in a village, not to a crowd by the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching in the temple which means that he has stepped up his aggressiveness and he is now in the face of the people uh, who want to do him harm. We have told you before that one of the interesting things about reading Luke's gospel account is that we see an increase in Jesus' uh, uh, aggression, in Jesus' boldness, as we go along in Luke. Early in Luke, Jesus will say something, Jesus will do something, somebody will get upset, somebody will get mad, and you look around and Jesus has slipped off and he's gone. They look for him, he's slipped into the crowd and he has left. When he speaks to the Pharisees or to another group of religion scholars, scribes or Sadducees, he'll speak very mildly, very diplomatically, uh, trying to cajole them into understanding his work and what he has come for. But the farther along you go in Luke's gospel, and I challenge you one day, read Luke from beginning to end. It's only 24 chapters long. It's really, and, and when you say 24 chapters, that's, that sounds like a lot, but it's really not. You, you can read Luke in a couple of hours. As you read Luke, one of the things that you will notice is that the farther along he goes, the more aggressive, the more outspoken he becomes. So that by the time he gets to Jerusalem, he is bold, he is bad, he is brash, he is unapologetic, he is in their faces. 
And, and, and you say, well, why, why is there this continuous incremental increase? The answer is simple. Jesus is trying to force these people, the religion scholars, and those who hear him to make a decision, to come to a conclusion about him, who he is and uh, what his ministry is, whether or not we will serve him or whether we will uh, reject him. It reminds us that at some point, all of us have to make a decision with regard to Jesus. You can't stay on the fence forever about Jesus. And you say, well, you're talking to us who are in the church, so we've made our decision. Well, if you say that, then you sound like Peter who, who, who said to Jesus, we've forsaken everything. We've given up everything to follow you. We've given up our jobs. We've given up our families. We've given up everything to follow you. In other words, why, why, why would you even question us? Because you can have your bodies in the right place and your hearts are someplace else. You can have your bodies in the right place, but your minds and your will and your affection and your aspiration is someplace else. Jesus doesn't just want our bodies. He wants the totality of who we are. He wants body, mind, spirit. He wants will. He wants commitment. And at some point, you have to make a decision. And the decision has to be absolute. You can't say, I'm going to serve Jesus under one set of circumstances. But as the circumstances change, I'll shift my allegiance away from Jesus. You, you, you can't have it where I'll serve him when things are going well for me. But when the conditions change, then I'm free to opt out and serve another agenda. No, either you're with him or you're not. And, and, and if you're not with him, you have the right to not be with him. But there are consequences that go along with that. And so Jesus intentionally steps up his level of, of, of aggressiveness, his level of outspokenness, because he's trying to prompt uh, the people, the religious orthodoxy, the religious community, as well as his own disciples to make up their own. Remember, when Jesus is finally taken in the garden, not even all of his disciples are still with him. The Bible says that when he was taken, everybody ran away. One, one, one version of the scripture says that Peter hung out at a distance to see what was going to happen. But when he was confronted with the idea of being with Jesus three times, he says, I, I don't know him. I really don't, you, you, you must be mistaken. You must be confused. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not with him. John's gospel account places John at the cross watching him die. And he's the only one of the, uh, of the 11 remaining disciples, because Judas has betrayed him. He's the only one of the 11 remaining disciples that even shows up at the cross, according to, to the four gospel accounts. But even at that, 
Before he died, John is gone. He's taken Mary off someplace else. Jesus is totally by himself. And it, it, it serves to remind us that we have to make a decision. Are we going to hang with Jesus or are we going to hang by ourselves? Are we going to go our own way? So he, he, he is constantly confronting the religious orthodoxy. In this particular case, he's dealing with the issue of authority. Listen to the question that the religion scholars asked. The high priests, religion scholars, and leaders confronted him and demanded, show us your credentials. Who authorized you to speak and act like this? When it says, show us your credentials, most of those who taught, most of those who uh, uh, assumed the position, the role of rabbi, of teacher uh, within Jewish religious uh, circles at that time, sat under the tutelage of someone else. For example, the apostle Paul, uh, striving to become a Pharisee at one point in his life before Jesus converted him, sat under the tutelage of a man named Gamaliel. And uh, uh, he, he's known as being one of the, the best students that Gamaliel ever had. That was the case. If you were assuming the role of a rabbi, you sat under somebody else. And so the first question had to do with Jesus' personal authority. Who did you sit under? Who gave you the teaching that you had? Who taught you what you're teaching others? The, the question was about his personal authority. The second question had to do with his official accreditation. Who sent him? And Jesus doesn't answer either question. But the question speaks to authority. Now, let's talk about this for a second. It is interesting to note that for some folk, authority is a greater temptation than money. Did you know that? There are some folk who get off on being boss. I'm the boss. I'm the head. This is my territory. When we were children, we, 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 we had a game that we played called No Standing Up in the Country. Anybody ever play that, that game? Besides, it was usually a boys game that played, although girls got in there too, and some of them were more rough than the boys were. The whole idea was we were all gathered in, in a little heap. Can't call it a circle, it was a little heap. And, and one person stood up which meant that he was the king of this group. And the role of all the other kids in the group was to knock him down. And, and, and the one who stood up had to be strong enough to push everybody else down. And the longer he stayed up, the better, the tougher, the stronger he was. That, that, that's the way a lot of us, we are big on authority. 
We are big on being boss. We are big on being the one who knocks everybody else down. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the Sadducees were doing. That's what religious orthodoxy was doing. They were holding on to their religious authority, their civic authority, particularly centered around Jerusalem. And it wasn't necessarily for religious reasons. It was for cultural reasons. It was for peaceful reasons. It, it was for political reasons. We've told you before that these people, uh, while they were the religious leaders of the day, the Roman government backed them and their authority because the Roman government wanted them to keep the peace among the people. As long as they kept the peace among the people, then everything was fine. Uh, but the moment that the peace was broken, there was the threat that the Roman government would intervene, step in, and they would take charge of the situation. So these religious leaders, these religious authorities, weren't just standing on the basis of religious principle. They were standing on the basis of civic authority and the power that came, backed by the Roman government, by being the intermediary, the, 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 the filter between the Roman government and the people. They got wealthy off of that. But they also got powerful off of that. And as we said a moment ago, some people are more intoxicated by the idea of power than they are anything else. Notice how they approach Jesus. Notice how they attack Jesus. By whose authority do you dare step into my territory, our territory? This is territory we have staked out. We're standing up in the country. Ain't nobody going to knock us down from here. How dare you step in, intervene into what has been our sacred space? Who gave you the authority to do that? Well, Jesus didn't answer the question. In fact, what Jesus does is he asks his own question. He asked questions about uh, who authorized John to baptize. Did, did it come from people or did it come from God? And they didn't know how to answer. They huddled up and, 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 and they reasoned. Understand, they weren't interested in finding the truth. They were interested in finding an answer that would maintain their standing. Once again, the intoxication was about authority. Well, Jesus didn't answer the question, but I'm going to answer the question that Jesus didn't answer. Okay? By whose authority are you doing this? God's. The Father's. The one that you claim to be representing. It is God's authority that allows me to do this. Three things I want you to see, and then we're going to get in, in, into the parable itself. First of all, all authority belongs to God. We don't have any authority in and of ourselves. Uh, the only authority that we have is the authority that God lends to us. But understand that it is a stewardship responsibility, and that's point number two. The authority that we have been granted is a stewardship. Stewardship means what? that we manage that which belongs 
to someone else. But if you are a steward, at some point, you have to give an account for how well you have done or what you did not do with what has been entrusted into your care. And point number three, authority is a means of service, not a means of control. If we truly understand the, 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 the point of authority, God gives authority to those that he wants to serve. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And who had more authority than Jesus? No one. So, so if we have the proper understanding, our problem is we don't have a proper understanding of authority. We want to be boss of something so that we can tell other folk what to do. And what we fail to recognize is that we have the responsibility of meeting the needs of those. That's what our authority gives us the latitude to do. These people ask Jesus, by whose authority did you do this? Who, who taught you? Where did you get the information that you have? And, 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 and Jesus would not answer the question. He posed a different question to them. They got together. They huddled up. Just a little thing for you to think about. If you got to huddle up to come up with an answer, you ain't going to have the right answer. They huddled up. They discussed it. They had a debate about what the right answer should be. And, and, and they decided not to answer at all. I, I like the way Peterson puts it. He says, they agreed to concede that round to Jesus and said they didn't know. We'll pass on that. That's it. We'll pass on that. And Jesus said, okay, well, if you're going to pass, and I can pass as well. I ain't going to answer your question either. But then Jesus would not stop that. He goes on to give a parable. He tells the story about a man who plants a vineyard, and, and he leaves it in the care of certain farm hands, as, as Peterson describes them. And he says that after a while, he sends servants back in order to collect the profit from the vineyard that has been planted. And instead of collecting the profit, uh, the servants that are sent back are beaten up and, and sent back with nothing. Uh, he sends one servant. He's beaten up and sent back with nothing. He sends a second servant. He's beaten up even worse, and he's sent back with nothing. He sends a third servant. He's beaten up even worse than the first two. And again, he's sent back with nothing. And, and, and so the, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they will respect him. If they don't respect the servants, then surely they will respect the son. And when the son heads toward the vineyard, they see him coming off in a distance and they gather together in a huddle. Remember what I just said about if you got to gather together in a huddle, that, that, that you ain't going to come up with the right answer. It says, as they saw him coming, they gathered up in a huddle. 
And they said, well, nah. <laughs> now we can really get what we want. Said, we, we, we will kill him. And if we kill him, then everything that we have here will be ours. And that's exactly what they did. They killed him. And then they tossed his body over the fence. And, 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 and when Jesus gets to the end of that part of the story, he asks a question. What do you think that the owner of the vineyard will do? He'll come and clean house. Then he'll assign the care of the vineyard to others. Those who were listening said, oh, no, he'd never do that. Hold on to that, oh, no, he'd never do that. Okay? Because that tells me that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had a clear understanding of what Jesus was saying in this parable. We've told you before, and as we said, this is the 14th one of these, so you ought to know by now. In every parable, there is symbolism. And it's important that we understand the symbolism in order to understand the meaning of the parable. And the symbolism is wrapped around the context. That's why we wanted to give you the context to begin with. These people wanted to act on their authority. They were getting off on their authority. They were high on the authority that they had. And they had no regard for anyone who was coming to take that authority away from them. So Jesus tells them a story about real authority. Point number one, you don't have absolute authority over that which does not belong to you. He starts the parable by saying, a man planted a vineyard, and then he left it in the care of farmhands. Well, if he left it in the care of farmhands, that means that the farmhands don't own it. It's not theirs. It's not their possession. Whose possession is it? It's the possession of the one who planted the vineyard in the first place. So, 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 so the owner of the vineyard is God. The farmhands in whom he has left this, uh, this vineyard in the care of is representative of the religious orthodoxy. The Sanhedrin Council, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the various sects of, of Judaism. He says that he has left it in your care. Remember, these are parables, which means Jesus can shape the story any kind of way he wants to because he's trying to draw out a desired outcome. They should not be read literally. They should be read with the understanding that there's a moral to the story that Jesus is trying to convey. God is the owner of the vineyard, and these people are acting like they have absolute authority over that which does not belong to them. The owner planted the vineyard, but the farmhands were taking credit for what the owner did. Question, are we guilty of taking credit for that which God has done? Do you know anybody who talks about how smart they are? 
how slick they are, how intelligent they are, how they were able to maneuver everything in such a way as to cause it to turn out a certain kind of way. Do, do you know anybody like that? You might, you might live with somebody who talks like that. You might be friends with people who talk like that. Heck, you might be the one who talks like that. I, I, I'm, I'm this smart. I'm this I'm this good. I'm, I'm this above average. Do you know that you don't own nothing? Do you know that you don't even own you? Did you know Jesus says you can't add or take away one day from your life? You can't add one day to it. You can't take one day away from it. You don't even know, even those of you who lose in your hair like me, you don't even know how many hairs you got on your head, but God does. You know why he knows? Because he's the owner. And the owner knows stuff that you don't know. If you think that you're here under your strength, because you eat right and take all your vitamins, if you think that's why you're here, because you exercise every day and you walk so many miles and you lift weights and you tote barges and lift bales, do you know somebody woke up this morning, stood up, and fell dead? And they got better physiques than you got. They dead and got better physiques than you got. Because it ain't got nothing to do with what you look like. It ain't got nothing to do with how well you take care of yourself. Some folk live to be 100 and some odd years old and they drink liquor every day. They drink liquor every day. And some of y'all drink nectar of something <laughs> and, and, and you're sick all the time because <laughs> it ain't got nothing to do with you you are here under his divine authority the, the owner planted the vineyard the owner left it into their care. And as you would expect, the owner has a right to recoup on his investment. So he sends people in order to get the profit from the vineyard that he planted and left in their care. But something happened between him handing the vineyard over to them to manage and him sending these servants in order to recoup the, the, the profit. What happened was the farmhands started to think that what they were managing was actually theirs. And that they could do with what was theirs as they wanted. They were brazen 
about it. Who were these servants that he sent in order to, to, to recoup his investment? They were prophets. The, 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 the religious leaders had a good understanding of what he was talking about. He sent people in order to teach what thus saith the Lord. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Don't think that the only prophets that we know about are the ones that are listed in the Old Testament canon. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And each and every time the prophet came and shared the word of God and the people would not hear. Jeremiah got so mad after 40 years of preaching that he turned to God and said, I ain't doing this no more. He said, I'm, I'm tired. I preach. I teach. I share. I serve. And these people ain't listening to me. They're going to do what they want. I ain't doing this no more, God. I'm going home. I know you called me, but I, I, I ain't doing this. I'm going home. And he turned, and he headed back. Now, now, now y'all talking about the part where he says he couldn't turn back because it was like fire shut up. Y'all like that part. I'm talking about the fact I'm ready to quit. I'm tired. Have you ever dealt with a situation so long that you just say, I'm tired of dealing with it? I don't want to mess with this. No, Jeremiah was the wrong one for me to use as an example. Let me use Moses as an example. M Moses is a better example. <laughs> Moses stayed with them folk for 38 years. Every time they wanted one thing and God provided it for them, then they wanted something else. Just, just so happens that, that, that he had just fed them with, 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 with food, and, and, and they ate the food, and then they came to him and said, well, now you know we are thirsty. We, we do want something to drink along with this. And, 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 and Moses turned to God and said, here they go again. He said, they, 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 they want water. And God said, well, go over there to that rock and speak to it. Talk, talk to the rock. And when you talk to the rock and when you, when you tell the rock to bring forth water, water's going to come out of the rock. And Moses let his frustration get the better of him. And instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. Not once, but twice. And the scripture says that water came running, gushing out from the rock in such force that it knocked the people down. And Moses had a moment of satisfaction. You ain't going to bother me no more about no water, are you? You're going you gonna to leave me alone now. But then God comes to Moses. And God says, you didn't do what I told you to do. And as your punishment, you will not be able to go over into the promised land. 
To make it even worse, this is me adding on to it. To make it even worse, you can go up on a hill and you can look at it. But, 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 but you can't go over into it. Who were the people that, 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 that Jesus says the landowner sent to the farmhands? It was people like Moses and people like Elijah and people like Ezekiel and people like David and people like Daniel and people like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and people like Hosea and people like Joel and people like Amos. These were the people that were sent time and time and time again. And, and, and he says in the story, every time they came looking to collect the farmhands who did not own the land and had a responsibility to give back to the owner his profit on the land, beat them up and sent them packing with nothing. Remember who the farmhands are. They are the religious orthodoxy. The, the, the owner of the, of the vineyard is God. So God has given the religious orthodoxy temporary authority over that which belongs to him. Understand, when you give over temporary authority, you never relinquish ownership. God is still the owner. He allows you to do things, but he's still the owner. And, 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 and when the servants come, when the prophets come, when, when, when the wise men come, when the holy men come, when the seers come, borrowing from a phrase from the midday Bible study, when, when they come, they are sent packing, and the people make no change. And here's the other thing. It's not written in the text, but you can imagine that it's true. Every time they beat up one and threw him down, they got more and more brazen. They got more and more emboldened. We can do this all day. It's funny how when you do something wrong the first time, you feel so guilty about it. You look around to make sure ain't nobody see what you did. You pray, God, I'm, I'm so sorry for what I did. Please forgive me. By the time you've done it the 10th time or the 20th time, you've gotten to the place where you don't feel any shame or any guilt at all. I like using practical examples. I used to drive real fast. I don't, I, I don't do it that much anymore. But I, but, but I used to drive real fast. And I drove so fast, so often, that I thought I had the right to drive as fast as I wanted to drive. The speed limit on the side of the road was just a suggestion. <laughs> Didn't mean anything at all. To the point that when I got pulled over, I was like, what did I get pulled over for? I was just rolling with the traffic. It's a, it's, a, it's a brazenness that comes with this authority that, 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 that they exercise and that they use in the wrong 
way. The master says, well, I know what I'll do. I've, I've sent all these servants, and they get beat up, and they get sent back. So I'm going to send my son. He said, they, they, they may not respect the servants because they don't see the familial tie, but surely they will respect my son. After all, it's my son. It's my boy. It's, it's bone of my bone. It's flesh of my flesh. When they see him, they ought to see me, and they ought to act accordingly. So, so he says to his son, go on down the road and collect my profits and bring it back to me. And, and he heads on down the road. But as he heads down the road and they see him coming, they say, okay, well, now here's our opportunity to have it all. He's just been sending servants, but now he's sending his son. He's sending his flesh and blood. If we kill him, then this thing is ours. It can't belong to anyone else. And so that's exactly what Jesus says they did. They let the son come into their presence, and they gathered around him, and they beat him, and they killed him, and they tossed his body aside like he was nothing. And that's where the story ends. And, and, and the Pharisees are put back. They're, they're, they're put off. They're, they're shocked because Jesus is now accusing them. They recognize who the symbols are in the story. Jesus is accusing them of being murderers of God's Messiah of being murderers of God's Christ. And Jesus doesn't get into a debate with them about whether or not they would. Jesus asks a question about what happens as a result. Notice his question. What do you think the owner is going to do after you've killed his son? And before they even have the chance to answer the question, he tells them what they're going to do. He'll come and clean house, meaning he's going to wipe out all of y'all. And then he will assign the care of the vineyard to others. Now, they did not argue about whether or not they would kill the son. They argued about what the owner would do in response. Don't miss that. That's important. Because what, what, what they were giving away in what they debated was that they were very comfortable in the idea that we're in charge of this situation. So comfortable in the idea that they're in charge that they can't see any possibility of them not being in charge. They can't see any possibility of them being dethroned, of them, of them being put in a position where they are no longer in control. So they don't argue about whether or not they would kill the son. They argue about whether or not the owner would come and clean house and move them out of the way. Now, if you don't get the point here, the point here is just how arrogant they are. Just how filled with hubris they are. 
They are so comfortable in their position of authority that they don't believe that they will ever be in a position when they are not in authority. That is a sign of an arrogant person. Some of y'all know something about that arrogance. I've always been this way. I always will be this way. You say something to me I don't like, I'm going to cuss you out. And I ain't going to take no pity on you. I'm going to use every word that I can think of because I've always been this way. You hurt me, I'll hurt you twice for what you've done to me. Make you regret that you ever did anything to me because I've always been this way. And it always has been and it always shall be. When I was a boy, one of the best teams in football were the Dallas Cowboys. I, 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 I have been a Cowboys fan for as long as I know anything about football. From the age of six, I was a Cowboys fan. People ask you, how far back can you go? I can go all the way back to Don Maynard playing quarterback. You don't even know who Don Maynard is. And then Dandy Don Meredith, and then Craig Morton, and then Roger Starbeck, and then Danny White. I, I can call the role of all of those great players. And, and, and it looked like some teams were just great year in and year out. The Cowboys were one of those great teams. The Steelers, one of those great teams. And then in, 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 in the 90s, the Cowboys, again, became great. And the 49ers were great. And then there was this young up-and-coming team, the Packers, that came great. And, and, and you know who was never great? The Saints. Saints were a terrible football team. The Saints found ways to lose. Never forget, the, the Saints were leading the Oakland Raiders at halftime, 17 to nothing. End of the game, they lost 35 to 17. Saints were a terrible football team. So bad that, that some of y'all have relatives, because I know none of y'all did it, who would go to the stadium and put bags over your head. Would call the team the Aints instead of the Saints. And it was that way for a long time. And we got to the place, I got to the place, I ain't gonna speak for nobody else, I got to the place where I thought the Cowboys were always gonna be one of the upper echelon teams in the NFL. Last Super Bowl we won was in 1996. I had my, 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 my firstborn child bouncing on my knee when the Cowboys won their last Super Bowl, beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl. That boy who was bouncing on my knee now weighs 300 pounds, and he's 24 years old. The Saints haven't, I mean, the Cowboys haven't sniffed a Super Bowl ever since. We are uh, uh, 
a model of mediocrity. Six and ten, six and ten, seven and nine, eight and eight. Oh, that was a pretty good year. Eight and eight, we did, we did all right. And while we have flipped and become a team that was never, that, that, that's never in contention, the Saints, which used to be a team where y'all put bags on your heads and y'all y'all laughed at and y'all joked about. The Saints have become a perennial playoff challenger. The Saints have become a very fierce football team. The Saints have become a team to be reckoned with. What's my point? Am I here just talking about football? No, I'm here making the point. You think things are gonna stay the same way all the time. You, you, you think that because it's been that way for a long time, that it's going to stay that way. Not in this world. Not in this life. You ain't as strong now as you were yesterday. And you keep getting up in the morning. You won't be as strong tomorrow as you are today. Some of y'all think y'all still got the same strength that you had years ago. No, you don't. You don't have the same strength that you had. You don't look like you used to look. You know, so, 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 some of y'all don't know how to deal with that. Y'all been so used to being the best looking thing in the room and now people don't even think about you. They walk right by you like, like, like you ain't even there. And you don't know what to do with your Things don't remain the same always. There was an arrogance that existed in this religious orthodoxy that said, we have been in charge for so long. We are so entrenched. We are so uh, rooted in, in our authority that nothing can displace us. We can even kill the son of the owner and nothing will happen to us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what the owner is going. The owner will show up. And when he shows up, he's going to clean house. All y'all going to be gone. None of y'all going to be left. And then he's going to take what belongs to him. And he's going to give it to someone else. Now, in response to that, they say, oh, no, no, no. The owner would never do that. Listen to how Jesus responds. But Jesus didn't back down. Why then do you think this was written? The stone the masons threw out. It's now the cornerstone. Anyone falling over that stone will break every bone in his body. If the stone falls on anyone, it will be a total smash-up. What's the stone representative of? It's representative of the one that was killed, the one that was thrown out, the one that was thrown over the fence. And of him, of, uh, of him, Jesus says, the owner will come and he will make him the foundation upon which everything else is built. Theoretically speaking, because I don't know anything about architecture or, or contracting, but theoretically speaking, the cornerstone represents everything else that, everything that's built upon, is built on the cornerstone. 
The cornerstone has to be strong because everything else is built around that. The cornerstone has to be straight so that the building can be straight. The, co the cornerstone has to lay a certain kind of way so that the building lays a certain kind of way. And so the cornerstone is very important in the building process. These days, we use cornerstones primarily as decoration. But in that time, the cornerstone was the main stone upon which everything else was built. All the lines were drawn that had to connect back to the cornerstone. And so he says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. And anyone who falls over that stone becomes destroyed. He says, if you trip over the stone, you're destroyed. He says, if the stone falls on you, you're destroyed. So you can't trip over the stone, and you can't let the stone fall on you. Leads me with one question, and I'm done. What can you do with the stone? You can build your life on that stone. Don't trip over it. Don't let it fall on you. But build the foundation of your life on that stone. Yeah, I know. I know where it is. That's primarily decoration. But I'm talking about a real cornerstone. I'm talking about a real cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one upon which you build your life. You don't tell Jesus no. You tell Jesus, yes, Lord, I'll do what you ask me to do. Yes to your will. Yes to your way. You don't tell the Lord, I'm going to do it my way sometime. I'll come back to you sometimes, but I'm going to do it my way sometime. That's falling over the stone. That's allowing the stone to fall on you. The only way that you can build your life properly is to make sure that you use the cornerstone as the foundation of everything else that you build. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come. Just as I am Thank you.